0: Thank mm-hmm. you. K-B-O-O, Portland. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. This week, we bring rock and roll back to you. We listen to one of the great creative spirits of the 20th century, Jimi Hendrix. In a brief four-year period from 1966 to 1970, he would stun crowds with both his virtuosity and with the never-before-heard sounds he could get out of the electric guitar. Jimi Hendrix was a light that burned twice as bright, which unfortunately left this world at an all-too-young age of 27. He died on September 18, 1970.
1: So his I jumped my to see why and who could this time In 1982,
0: 12 years after his death, a team of producers from Pacifica's flagship station, KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, California, including Barry Scott, Craig Street, and Don West, enlisted the help of Hendrix biographer David Henderson, who wrote Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child of the Aquarian Age, in 1978, to produce a four-hour documentary honoring Jimi. The four-hour documentary compiled never-before-heard and rare recordings and interviews with Jimi Hendrix. There are also interviews with the people who knew him best, his family, blues singer John Hammond, who befriended the young Hendrix in Greenwich Village in 1966, Chaz Chandler, who brought Jimmy to England and became his manager, as well as his bandmates and Hendrix's biographer David Henderson.
2: That's what I make the money for is to make better things, you know, happen. Jimmy Hendrix. I don't have no value of money at all. That's the only, my only fault. Jimmy Hendrix. I just get the things that I see and want, and to try to put it into music.
3: Jimmy Hendrix.
2: I, w- I want to have a stereo of where it goes up. The sound goes up in am behind, and underneath, you know. But all you can get now is just a cross and a cross. You know, people really believe that that every single person is born here is completely different, you know. I mean that's, that's true, but through the times, can you imagine all these what if we all are supposed to go to heaven all that? can you imagine all these people who died beforehand yeah. and all of us, all of them in heaven.
4: Yeah, all God. of them top each other, <laughs> hey man, no more, man. <laughs> the Lord
2: man, I don't have the rule up here, If it oh, will you had the business dying, did you? So, oh, oh God. But <laughs> so can you imagine that? Wow.
5: <laughs>
3: changed the course of rock music with a grace and intensity that remains unparalleled. In his short career, he completely redefined the electric guitar. Jimmy was also a typical and at the same time tragic example of the constant struggle that exists between an artist's personal life and that shared by his public and his management. I'm Don West.
6: I'm Craig Street.
3: And I'm Barry Scott. Join us now for a close look at the life and music of Jimi Hendrix.
6: Well, can you remember something really far back when you when you when yeah you I can remember when the nurse put the diaper.
2: Can this, you really? Yeah, when the really? nurse I, I don't know what I was there for, but I remember when I used to wear diapers, yeah. and then uh, she was like talking to me. And she took me out of the uh, this crib or something like that, and then she held me up to the window. This was in Seattle, mm. and she showed me um, something up against the sky. And it was fireworks and all that. It must have been the Fourth of July, you know, yeah. Yeah. Cause, and I remember and I remember her putting the diaper on me and almost sticking it, you know. I was, I was just, you know, and then she put like that. I remember I didn't feel so good, you know. I must, have, I must have been in the hospital sick about something. Can you remember any others? Well, I was small enough to fit in the clothes basket. I remember when I was small enough to fit in the clothes basket. You know the straw clothes baskets they have in America. Yeah, yeah. You put all the dirty clothes in, and there's, there's only about like that. Ha- they call them hampers? Or yeah, hampers. Yeah. I remember when my cousin and I was in there playing around. Oh. Yeah. But that must have been when I was about three years like old. And sometimes when you're sitting around then you start remembering some of the things that happened beforehand. Those are the first two that comes to my mind. And some dreams that I had when I was real little, you know. Like my mother was being carried away on this camel. And it was a big uh, caravan. And she's saying, well, I'm going to see you now. And she's going under these trees. You can see the shade. You know, the leaf patterns across her face. But she's going under this, you know, like that. And the sun, you know how the sun shines through a tree. And if you go under the shadows of the tree, the shadows go across your face. Well, these were in green and yellow shadows. like. She's saying, Well, I won't be seeing you too much anymore, you know, so I'll see. You. And then about two years after that, she died, you know. And I said, Pia, yeah, where are you going, though, like that? You know, I remember that. I always will remember that. There's some dreams you never forget. <laughs>
7: Jimmy Hendrix was born in Seattle, Washington, on November 27, 1942. His parents had at one time been vaudeville dancers, and in fact, many of Jimmy's flamboyant stage moves can be traced directly to those traditions. At the time Jimmy was born, his father, Al Hendrix, was in the service, stationed in the South, and first saw his son three years after his birth.
8: At the time, um, uh, his mother and I we weren't together and I raised him more or less myself there. Oh, between the health of my sister and my uh, brother and his wife. I know kind of around that oh uh, Presley rage, I don't know, when I first noticed that he got interested in guitar. tired. I used to notice that uh, where we stayed at, I used to have him clean up the bedroom all the time while I was gone. And when I come home, well, I find a lot of broom straws around the foot of the bed. <laughs> I, I ask him, I said, well, didn't you sweep the floor? He said, oh, yeah, he did. But uh, I found out later he used to be sitting at the foot of the bed there uh, strumming the broom like he was playing the guitar. And that's all where all the broom straws come from. Well, I found an old ukulele that, uh, old album, one of my jobs didn't have all the strings. So he got strings for it. He used to plunk away on that. He got good. Of course, only so far you go through ukulele. But, uh, then there was a friend of mine. uh, Oh, he had this uh, acoustic guitar. He wanted to sell for five dollars. So, Jimmy told me about it and I thought, okay. I gave him the money. He strummed away on that and he used to be working away on that all the time. Any spare time he had, he used to be playing his guitar. So after he got good on that, I went and got him electric guitar. And, uh, well, he played with various groups. Oh, oh, local groups around teenage dances and parties and what have you, things like that, or just little gigs on their own. Oh, well, that's the way it went with him, I mean, he'd you know, always be strumming on him.
6: At 17, Jimmy joined the Army Airborne. He was based at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for his brief career as a paratrooper.
2: I was in the Army for about 13 months, you know, because I got tired of that, it was very boring. And so I pretended that I hurt my back, and I really did break my ankle, so I got out my like that, you know. So I started playing around all over the South, you know, we had a band in Nashville, Tennessee and uh i got tired of playing in that because you know we, they don't want to move anywhere they just want to stay there so i started traveling around i went to new york and won first place in the uh, apollo amateur contest mm-hmm. 25 mm-hmm. dollars so i stayed up there starved up there for about two or three weeks and then i got eyes brothers asked you know the Eyesley brothers yeah. went to the twisting shop asked if i like to um you know play with them so i played with them for a while and got very bored you know because you get very tired of playing behind other people all the time so then i quit them in nashville somewhere and uh I went with this guy who was on a tour with bb king jackie wilson and sam cook you know and all these people chuck jackson so i played uh i was playing guitar behind a lot of the acts on the tour and uh then i got stranded in kansas city because i missed the bus you know so i was in kansas city missouri and didn't have any money and some you know this group came up and brought me back to Atlanta, Georgia, where I met Little Richard and I started playing with him for a while, about five or six months. And I got tired of that, you know, played some shows with Icontina Turner. Then I went back to New York and played with uh, King Curtis and Joy D. You know, I was playing, by, but all the time I was playing behind these different groups. And, this, and then I played with this little rhythm blues group named uh, Curtis Knight, and the Squires. And I made a few records, you know, arranged a few
3: songs for him. It was during the early 1960s that Jimmy made some of his first studio recordings, one now believed Lost with Steve Cropper in Nashville, and this single recorded in Los Angeles with Rosalie Brooks called My Diary. (laughs) ¶¶
9: I've turned out to be Found my dad,
5: <laughs>
2: group together named the Rainflowers, and in which <coughs> he had two names, the Rainflower and the Blue Flame. Any one of those names is all right.
7: Shortly after Jimmy arrived in New York, blues singer John Hammond came across him playing in a small Greenwich Village club.
10: This was summer of 1966. I had just returned from Japan, and I was in New York getting a job together at uh, the Gaslight which was on McDougall Street. Got the gig together and was playing downstairs, and one night a friend stopped into the club after my show and said that there was a guy down the street playing uh, all these songs off an album of mine that I really had to go and see. I came down to uh, the Cafe Wah, which was a joint also on McDougall Street, about a half block down from the gaslight. I sat through about three songs until the show was over. And then uh, was introduced to him by my friend Ben Atelbaum. And he says, "Oh, hey, man, I know you. I've got your record." He called himself Jimmy James at the time. And we became friends instantly, it seemed. And I was very impressed with him and suggested that we put a band together and get a gig at a club right nearby, which was the cafe Ogogo, which was on Bleecker Street and was probably the most happening blues and jazz club, I guess, in the village. Everyone from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Bob Dylan to just about who's who was in to hear us play. The band was a drummer, bass player, keyboard players would uh, from time to time jam with us, among them Al Cooper, And Barry Goldberg. Backup guitar was a guy named uh, Randy Wolf, who has since become Randy California. Jimmy and I uh, were the lead. I did the the vocals and played harmonica, and he played the guitar, and everything else sort of fell together, and it was a groove. You
2: know, I was going with this girl, you know, I had this girlfriend from England that I met in one of the clubs in um, New York. And she uh, told Chess about me, because Chess, you know, the animals were playing in Central Park. So they came down and heard me, you know, and asked what I like to come over to England and start a group over here. Over to England, I said, yeah, you know. So I come over to England and meet Noel Redding, the bass player, and Mitch, Mitchell, the drummer.
11: Experienced bassist, Noel Redding. Well, I'd sort of played guitar professionally for about four years before, and uh, I was getting a bit sort of, like, disappointed because, like, it was hard to get work, etc. So I bought a musical paper, and I saw that Eric Burden was looking for a band. So I went up to London, went to an agent, I found out the place, and I went round there, played guitar. Meantime, Chaz Chander walks up to me and says, can you play bass? I said, no. So he said, can you try? I said, yes. So I played bass. I'd only played it maybe once before, twice before, in Germany, on a blues maybe. And they asked me to join the group.
8: I was surprised to get this call from London, England. I didn't know who that would be coming from. here, Jimmy, he said to me, he said, Well, Dad, he said, I think I'm on my way to the big time. He says, uh, I'm over here in England now, and they're building up a group around me, and he said, I'm naming it the Jimmy Hendrix Experience. So I said, Well, good for you, little son. I said, Well, just keep your nose clean and just <laughs> keep in there wailing. Well, so, he told me, he said, Well, he said, I'll be able to get you all out of the same thing I always said I was going to get you. And, I said, well, you take care of yourself out there. I'm doing okay now. Mm-hmm.
6: a sensation in England, and most of the top English musicians were going to see him play. It was exciting for them to hear a black American as well-versed in the blues as Jimmy was. Blues master Muddy Waters was a great influence, and experiencing the blues is Jimmy's tribute to him. It was recorded at the Flamingo Club in London, February 1967. We asked John Mayall about the music scene in England during this period.
4: I don't know, just all the blues and all the people that you hear about. You know, that was kind of an underground movement. It really had no reflection on the charts or what people was playing on the radio. It was a club thing, it was an underground thing. The whole thing went on for years like that. It was only when Cream, um, you know, became international that, that people started to, you know, check it out. The album you got, Jimmy Hendrix Experience, that's what he was playing. When Chaz Chandler brought him to England, they just started off completely from scratch, you know, stone-free. And that was his repertoire, all that first album, that's what he was playing.
11: I'd been working in Germany for about two years, so I was out of England all the time. But it was mainly sort of um, the Kinks, the Small Faces, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, really. And American music was coming in a bit then, like the birds, the move was just starting. Traffic, that was that period of time.
3: Hey Joe had been a favorite song of Jimmy's when he was in New York. Dropping corn after corn into jukeboxes, he listened repeatedly to the Tim Rose version of the song. In December 1966, Hendrix released what was to become his first hit single.
10: The DJs in the U.S. wouldn't play uh, Hey Joe because of uh, it said I'm going to shoot my old lady, and uh, just I mean that's true. And this this is what he explained to me. (laughs) Hey!
1: Mm Yeah.
6: after its release in England, Hendrix's first album came out in America. Even at this early point in his musical development, Jimmy was pushing electronic and recording studio technology to their limits in order to produce the sounds that he heard. The record surprised many listeners with its seemingly impossible guitar playing and stylistically diverse material.
2: His name, uh, Are You Experienced? It has uh, about three or four different moods. It has about two rock and roll songs, which you can call rock and roll, you know. And then it has uh, Maybe, you know, it has a blues. And it has a few freak-out tunes.
4: This is the In Sound, presented by the United States Army. <laughs> a happy how-do-you-do to do you. This is the In Sound. I'm Harry Harrison, and welcome to our show. Every day, we let you, the listener, pick the record that we put into the In Sound Spotlight. Today, one of those great Army recruiters in the Chicago area that's going to make the pick. Oh, my old hometown of Chicago. Hiya, Chicago. Sergeant Dan Fentley is on the line. Sarge, how you doing? How are you? Fine, and you? Very good. Sarge, the kids in the Chicago area are big record fans, I know. Now, what's one of those numbers moving up the charts there?
5: Well, uh, right now, the Purple Haze.
4: That's the big one by? The
5: Jimi Hendrix, Experience.
4: Right, and that's our featured record today, Sarge, and thank you for giving it to us. Welcome, Harry. It's called Purple Haze by the Jimi Hendrix Experience.
9: While I kiss the sky Purple haze all around Don't know if I'm coming up or down Never happy or in misery Whatever it is, that girl put a spell on me
4: It's the Jimi Hendrix experience and Purple Haze. Jimmy, who's American and Mitch and Noel who are English and talking with us, Jimmy. Hello, Jim. Hi. Jimmy, tell me, how is it an American makes it big first in England?
2: Well, like I was playing behind different top forty RB groups here in the States, you know, for about mm-hmm. off and on for about four or five or six years. And just got tired and went to the village and had my own group together, you know. Uhhuh. And so uh, Jess Chandler comes through and asks would I like to come to England? You know, he's seen us down in the village, and that's why I had to come to England. Someone over there, and uh, Mitch Mitchell, the drummer, you know, Noel Redding, the bass player, mm-hmm. and I, we got together and performed our group, and, uh, you know, it's been happening ever since.
4: Well, it sure has. What's happening now is we're out of time, sorry to say. Good to have you on the show. Jimmy Hendrix Experience. Okay, take it easy. <laughs> The InSound was presented by the United States Army. And this is Harry Harrison reminding you that whatever career you want to follow, you can get a great start in the Army. Your future, your decision. Choose Army.
7: The InSound was a regular feature produced by the U.S. Army. He often spoke of wanting to paint pictures with sound, and Third Stone from the Sun was one of the earliest paintings he recorded. It's completely
2: imaginable, you know, it's just about these cats coming down and taking over Earth. You know, the Third Stone from the Sun, it, it lasts about seven minutes, and it's uh, instrumental on um, These guys come from another planet, and uh, they uh, observe Earth, you know, for a while. And they think that the smartest animal on the whole earth is uh, chickens, you know, hens. And so uh, they just, you know, there's nothing else here to offer. They don't like the people so much, so they just blow it up at the end, you know. They so have all these different sounds. All of them are made from There's nothing but a guitar, you know, bass and drums, and then uh, slowed down voices.
0: You are listening to The Jimi Hendrix, The Radio Documentary, produced by Barry Scott, Craig West, Don West, and David Henderson. There is no video version of this documentary. It is only in audio form. If you would like a copy of this program, call us at 1-800-735-0230 or go online at fromthefaultradio.org. Remember, every donation you make helps us fulfill our mission to preserve and restore another of our over 50,000 historic tapes in our collection. And now back to our program.
2: we going to the States around, I think we're going to leave about the 10th or the 12th of June. And, um, you know, we're going to play at the uh, Monterey Pop Festival. And then we have about four days at the Fillmore Auditorium. And then, we, you know, you have this TV and all this other stuff yeah. in between.
3: Despite his popularity in England, Hendrix was virtually unknown in the U.S. Many Americans thought Jimmy was English. Monterey Pop was his first major American performance, and there was an air of excitement over the festival crowd in anticipation. Brian Jones, at that time leader of the Rolling Stones, came from England to introduce Jimmy. Hendrix began his set by playing Howling Wolf's classic Killing Floor. Jimmy's stage presence and musicianship astonished the Monterey audience, and when he played Wild Thing to close out his American debut, smashing and burning his guitar as an offering to the crowd, they were overwhelmed, and Jimmy had firmly established himself as a star in the U.S. After Monterey, both Velvet Turner, who had been a close friend of Jimmy's for several years, and John Hammond saw Hendrix again for the first time since he had gone to England.
2: Music at that time, Jimmy seemed very, very confident. He didn't really worry so much about ideas coming to him or about the type of music he was putting out because it was he was enjoying his success. Simplest way I could put it. All the concerts were sell out and the man seemed very, very happy. He was he seemed to be enjoying as much as I can imagine anyone enjoying anything, his his newfound rock and roll success. He could walk in clubs and people just as shy as he was, it was like Suddenly, he had all this power. And it wasn't an ego thing with him. It was just like a little kid in a candy store. It was all these beautiful girls, just like driving him crazy, calling him up and showing up at his door all the time, and just offering
8: themselves to him.
10: He had changed. He became more psychedelic. In other words, he drew uh, runs out, oh, you know, longer and longer, and extended them, and and distorted them, and made them you know, farther and farther out, which the audiences ate up completely.
7: In concert, Hendrix, who was part Cherokee, frequently dedicated "I Don't Live Today" to the American Indian. Author, poet, and Hendrix biographer David Henderson. I
8: think if you listen to "I Don't Live Today," uh, with the you know the Indian beat, quote unquote, but also I think that that's one of the most incredible protest songs ever written about the
7: soul of the Indian. By now Jimmy was touring constantly and a lot of money was being generated but contract details were foggy and Noel Redding felt that the problems that were to
11: appear later in Hendrix's life began here. I didn't see my contract until 1977 as it disappeared for that length of time. That was an original contract from 1966 between myself, Hendrix, Mitch Mitchell, Jeffries and Chandler, a production contract then there was other contracts between Hendrix and Warner Brothers there was contracts between Jeffries and a French record company There was a contract between Jeffries and Chandler and uh, a company called Track Records in England but after getting all these contracts you find that they're very cleverly written and uh, when you start looking for your money you don't get it there's a clause in the first contract that uh stated that the producers could pay any one member of the group and uh, that would suffice so they could just pay me and I wouldn't have to tell Hendrix or Mitchell or they could pay Mitchell and he wouldn't have to tell Hendrix or me and that would be part of the contract I was only twenty years old, right? So um, someone said, sign the contract, you'll get fifteen pounds a week, you sign it you didn't know in those days that uh, you might be signing the wrong thing I never sort of really thought about it because like, I trusted everyone involved, so they said papers to be signed, and we all signed them. And that was it, really.
6: However, by the end of 1967, Jimmy was not yet entangled in the business or personal problems that were to plague him shortly. He was becoming one of the most in demand and highly paid musicians in the world. As a guitar player, he was second to none. <laughs> This program was produced by Barry Scott, Don West, and Craig Street, who are solely responsible for its contents. The producers would like to thank Al Hendricks and the Jimi Hendrix Estate, Warner Brothers Records, Alan Douglas, Tom Lopez and ZBS, Noel Redding, John Hammond, D.A. Pennybaker, Harry Harrison,
3: Pacifica Radio, the Third World Department of KPFA, Belbroke Turner, Rich Black, David Henderson, Music Annex, and Elliot Mazur.
10: Charles Otis is drummer from new orleans louisiana jimmy was broke he'd been stranded in new york and charles loaned him about 10 bucks one day the next year i put a a band together with charles otis on the drums and uh, a bass player Uh, about six months or so later jimmy came back to new york and uh after making a big star of himself in europe came into the club where i was playing which was the gaslight and took me and uh, Charles upstairs for a drink, and he pulled out a roll of $1,000 bills. I mean, $1,000 bills? I mean, I, I had never seen one before. <laughs> and he had, like, a, a bundle of them. And he said to Charles, he said, Man, you once stood by me when I was hurting. Here, just help yourself. And Charles Charles paled. <laughs> he looked at the, the roll of money, said, Man, put that away.
9: straight ahead
0: That does it for this week's Rock and Roll from the Vault. The original 1982 program was produced by Barry Scott, Craig Street, Don West, and David Henderson. Special thanks to Al Hendricks and the Jimi Hendrix estate, Alan Douglas, Warner Brothers Records, Tom Lopez, and ZBS, the Pacifica Foundation, The Music Annex, Elliot Mazur, and Stevie Wonder, John Lee Hooker, Ornette Coleman, John McLaughlin, and Rashawn Roland Kirk. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica listeners who joined our campus campaign and have sponsored over 1,900 school libraries with the From the Vault series. For more information about how you can join the campus campaign, call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. In this time of educational crisis in our country, we are doing this grassroots style. Join our campus campaign. Visit us online at PacificaRadioArchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM.